Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, Sebastian Budgen analyzes the French election, and Sophia Japaridza reports on how NGOs have turned the country of Georgia into an impoverished libertarian laboratory. First, France. On April 23rd, France held an election to choose the successor to the disastrous President Hollande. Hollande, a nominal socialist, managed to alienate nearly everyone, earning some of the lowest approval ratings of any politician in the world. The initial field consisted of 11 candidates. Under French law, if no one gains a majority in the first round, there's a second runoff election between the top two candidates held two weeks after the first. Neither candidate of the two previously dominant parties, the Socialists on the center-left and the Republicans on the center-right, qualified. The winners were Emmanuel Macron, an investment banker with little political experience, and Marine Le Pen of the partly renovated far-right party, the National Front. The National Front was co-founded by Marine Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie, as an explicitly neo-fascist operation, nostalgic for the days of Nazi-occupied France. He was expelled from the party in 2015 by his daughter, who'd taken it over and tried to sanitize its image. The big surprise of the first round was the strong performance of the serious leftist, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who came in less than two points behind Le Pen. Here's Sebastian Budgen, a senior editor at Verso and a member of the editorial board of Historical Materialism, with more. It looks like France is going to experience a similar blackmail of one we've heard. Uh, it's getting rather familiar now. Vote for the neoliberal to stop the neo-fascist. Uh, is it going to work? Um, I think it's very likely to work, yes, um, for uh, several reasons. First of all, obviously, because uh, Marine Le Pen, for all the de-demonization of the Front National, clearly still represents a far-right political force. They've, of course, changed their discourse on a number of issues, but it's clear that it's still a racist and authoritarian party. Secondly, because Macron, the Hillary uh, bot, if you like, isn't quite as uh, politically bankrupt as Hillary Clinton in the sense that he's uh, young and fresh and new and no stains on him yet. And uh, thirdly, because the entire political establishment, uh, right and left, are calling for uh, a vote for him. Now, obviously, that doesn't guarantee that will translate into the popular vote, but at the moment, at least, the lead in the polls is so substantial, it would be difficult to imagine, unless there's a massive abstention, that he could lose. And Macron's politics, he, he's a former investment banker. Uh, he served briefly as, what, an economy minister. What, uh, what are his politics? Just standard issue neoliberal or, or what? slightly unusual for the French uh, situation. He's kind of a Tony Blair figure, if you like. He is slightly unusual for the French context because he's on a explicitly uh, neoliberal line with a smile. You know, it's uh, neoliberalism, but of course will compensate you with various types of flexi-security and so on. Uh, so it's not the neoliberalism with a snarl that uh, the Thatcherite program that was being promised by François Fillon. But he's unusual in the French context because he allies that with a political liberalism, if you like, on issues to do with Islam and secularism and gay rights and so on. So he, he's more of an American neoliberal, if you like, in the sense that he combines both economic uh, liberalism and political uh, liberalism. Could you say a bit more about his stance on uh, Islam and, uh, uh, and secularism? Yeah, I mean, he's not particularly distinctive. Uh, he doesn't have a particularly strong analysis, but he hasn't hitherto, at least, unlike the vast majority of the establishment candidates, used an Islamophobic dog, dog whistle type rhetoric. He hasn't said anything particularly outrageous about uh, the headscarf and so on. He's for a more uh, relaxed attitude to those kinds of of issues. Um, and he's more on a line of equal opportunities, 
the young kids from the banlieue should be given their chance to create their own businesses and so on and so forth. It's a neoliberal anti-racist or, or non-racist position. Sounds like someone who would fit in with the uh, our Democratic Party. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think he is. He's. It's very much a product of the Americanization of of French politics. Um, and uh, you know, there are some who fantasize, uh, believe it or not, about creating a Democratic Party in in France out of all the wreckage of these elections. So, um, no doubt, the process will go further. <laughs> Why would someone want to do such a thing? And Le Pen, uh, she has somewhat tried to sanitize the image of the party that her father uh, uh, dominated for so long. Um, just what are her politics uh, on the surface and then under the surface? Well, on the surface, she has quite a coherent message. She says uh, she has now posed as the uh, defender of the French welfare state, of the French uh, dirigiste uh, state, of French political geopolitical independence. So she says she's against what she calls uh, globalism. Uh, she's against uh, what she calls ultra-liberalism. She says she's for a form of uh, protectionism, economic protectionism. She says that she's for, she's not a racist, she's just in favor of uh, people integrating into the host community um, and that she is supposedly, um, you know, defending secularism and women's rights. Okay, so what about under the surface? What, what lurks underneath their uh, somewhat sanitized exterior? I don't think the fundamental politics of the Front National have changed. What she has tried to do is put a distance between herself and the uh, nostalgics of the Vichy regime, the nostalgics of the Third Reich. Uh, she still has very close friends who are neo-fascists, and uh, there are neo-fascists in and around the ranks of the Front National. I think what's fundamentally different is that she wanted to and has been successful in enlarging the Front National electorate towards a, a working class vote rather than just relying on the traditional petty bourgeois votes, particularly in the south of France. Um, and she's changed her political strategy. So rather than the strategy of her father, which was to uh, hold fast to um, a position in expectation of the explosion of the traditional right on a, on a very extremely right-wing position, she wants to uh, outflank the right uh, by, as I say, winning away their popular voters and potentially creating a situation in which a section of the of the traditional right might consider breaking away or creating some kind of coalition or deal with her. Her vote was quite strong in the north, correct? Yeah, she has two now. Uh, traditionally, the, the Front National was strong in the south of uh, France, and uh, she has now uh, with her new strategy, managed to implant the Front National in the north of France, which is traditionally a working-class, uh, deindustrialized uh, region. Now, this is becoming a familiar pattern. Uh, deindustrialized regions who are full of despair and unemployment uh, turn to uh, right-wing saviors. Uh, is this a former, a former left base that has turned to the right? Exactly, yes. Uh, the, the, the north of France was one of the, uh, the electoral uh, bases of the Socialist Party and the Communist Party. The Socialist Party has basically um, run it on a clientelistic basis for many decades now with a lot of corruption um, and, uh, and obviously not much material benefits for its electorate. And a section of that electorate is obviously looking for a, a way out, both towards uh, Marine Le Pen and uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. What was her father's line in the welfare state? Uh, has she changed that? Yes, I mean, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen was a Reaganite um, in the 80s. He was actually pro-EU as well. He had a kind of, you know, petty bourgeois critique of the state uh, being bloated, artisans and independent uh, workers suffering under taxes, and it was a socialist state and it needed to be 
cut down and so on and so forth. Uh, Marine Le Pen and her advisers have shifted to a line of uh, welfare state chauvinism, so defending the welfare state but only for French quote-unquote workers and uh, defending social security and, you know, an ambiguous line on some questions to do with with working conditions and so on. Immigrants, if they learn good French and uh, don't wear headscarves, are they considered French by her or is it a matter of blood? Well, it's obviously uh, moot, isn't it? I mean, uh, one of the things she wants to do is to um, replace the droit du sol, which is the the idea that you can have citizenship regardless of your you know your ascendancy, with the droit du sang, the the, the blood uh, the bloodline. So there's obviously clearly an ethnic factor in there, but it's overlain with a discourse about secularism and integration. I think it's clear that there's still a, a racist ethnocentric uh, conception. But it's it's increasingly well camouflaged behind a facade about this is not about white or or non-white. This is about French uh, law respecting people and uh, Islamists and com- what they call communitarians and so on. What are her relations to with uh, what uh, Mark Blythe calls the Trumpist International? She welcomed the Trump election. Uh, she as she did Brexit, but. Uh, I mean, her relations, as far as I can work out, with the American uh, far right are pretty uh, pretty weak. I mean, I think to the extent that they exist, they exist via her more kind of far out uh, connections. She doesn't have anything organic, as far as I can see. And I think she's a bit cautious about tying herself too much to uh, Trump and to the alt right, uh, both because of the excesses that. Um, that they can embarrass her by, but also because, you know, she has a line about French uh, geopolitical independence, um, and that obviously doesn't look too good if you're cozying up to the U.S. And what about the uh, the master puppet manipulator in Moscow, Vladimir Putin? Well, yeah, I mean, she has a pro-Putin line clearly on Syria and Ukraine and uh, so on, and she, she got famously a bank loan last time round from a, a Russian bank or a bank that was reliant on Russia. But again, uh, it's not clear how much these are just purely sort of instrumental opportunistic relations and how how organic they are at this point. There are clearly people within the Fournes enough who are very pro-Alexander Dugin and the whole Eurasianist notion uh, of some ideologues around Putin um, and, you know, that have fantasies about a, a kind of red-brown alliance uh, supported by uh, Putin, but I'm not sure how how real that is and how much that is um, uh, a fantasy, as I say, at this stage. Now, aside from the uh, the two finalists here, uh, there were, what, uh, nine other candidates. What about uh, those? Uh, for example, the, uh, the socialist nominee who did very, very poorly. The big news, yes, of course, of, of, of the elections is the uh, elimination of the two main pillars, establishment pillars of French politics, the right, the centre-right, um, who, who didn't get through to the second round and got a poor vote, although it must be said, in the circumstances, a better vote than I was expecting, given the corruption scandals around the candidate, and most dramatically, the Socialist Party, which uh, got its worst vote since 1969, uh, just uh, over 6%. Uh, and of course, 1969, the disaster of 1969, when they got 5%, led to the whole cycle uh, that led to Mitterrand refounding the Socialist Party in 1971. So we're clearly at the end of the road for the Socialist Party. It's perhaps one of the best bits of news of, uh, that, ele- of that election. And then Silon, uh, uh, was he undone by scandal or was it his politics as well? Well, he stood on a very right-wing, Thatcherite, openly neoliberal platform, which enthused his ranks, but didn't have um, a very big electoral appeal more generally. 
he started losing support already when it looked like he was pushing a kind of program of partial privatization of Social Security. But yeah, what really did for him were the corruption scandals about the employment of his wife and his kids and then various other scandals about him being offered very expensive suits by businessmen and so on. And given that he'd stood on a platform of being the the, the respectable bourgeois candidate as against the, the slightly creepy nouveau riche, bling bling, Sarkozy uh, type figure, that obviously um, destroyed that specificity for him. And I think it made some people on the right pretty uncomfortable, yeah. I'm speaking with Sebastian Budgen, a senior editor at Verso and a member of the Historical Materialism Editorial Board. And then the uh, the great hope of the left, Mélenchon. What was your uh, opinion of him? And uh, what, if anything, does he portend for the future? Well, it has to be said that his campaign and his result is quite historic. I mean, it's the best result, uh, nine, just over 19%. Uh, it's the best result for a candidate to the left of the Socialist Party since 1981. Um, and it's almost up to the level of the last historic high, which was the Communist Party candidate in 1969, who uh, Jacques Duclos, who got uh, 21%. So it's a, it's a massively uh, important result, I think, all the more so in, in, in circumstances where from the very beginning of the electoral cycle, everybody was saying that the left was completely uh, written off. Uh, this was simply going to be a two-horse race between the right and the far right, given also that obviously it was in the context of a socialist party government that had disappointed vast ranks and demobilized vast ranks of the left with the protest last spring against its labor code reforms, for example, um, and also in circumstances where Mélenchon really launched a campaign without a party, having uh, left behind his Communist Party allies uh, that he'd run with in 2012 and really created this kind of odd structure that uh, managed to carry him up to this level for for the presidential election so it has to be you know and it was a it was a vibrant energetic um impressive campaign with some enormous rallies uh demonstrations and innovative use also of of, of uh, social media and the internet and so on so i you know i think whatever criticisms one might have of his politics and i think there are some serious criticisms one could make uh it was a it's a real achievement um and it's uh you know he came within a whisker of being qualified for the second round which no one would have put any money on at the beginning of this cycle and uh you know you just have to look at the socialist party vote plus the Mélenchon vote you know it's 26 percent he would have been the front-running candidate had there not been this rather annoying competition from um the irrelevant now irrelevant socialist party uh so it's a real uh overturning of this situation previously and what it portends us to the future is a big question doug <laughs> That's the punditry game for you. You're supposed to come up. Well, let, before we talk about the future, what were his politics, uh, or what are his politics, and what critique might you have of them? Well, uh, Minosha was somebody who started off on the far left. He was a Trotskyist um, in the 60s and early 70s. He joined the Socialist Party in the late 70s. He was consistently on the left of the party. Uh, uh, he became one of the youngest senators uh, for the Socialist Party and was on the left of the party throughout the 80s and 90s, but being on the left of the Socialist Party means really, you know, being involved in lots of internal maneuvering and so on. It doesn't mean necessarily uh, having an organic relationship with social movements or that kind of thing. It's a very incestuous kind of uh, airtight world. Um, but he was on the left of the party. He has a fascination and hero worship of, of François Mitterrand, which is, you know, kind of concerning in and of itself, given the character of that particular politician. Um, but um, he he saw really that 
he wasn't getting anywhere within the Socialist Party. And I think the big break for him was in 2005 with the massive campaign against the European Constitutional Treaty, where all sort of sections of the left of the left came together and defeated the establishment on that vote. And uh, I think he saw that, you know, there was perhaps a space and an opportunity for him outside of the Socialist Party. And he broke a few years later and created his own small party and then the uh, left front, which was an alliance with the Communist Party and other forces. So in terms of his, the basic structure of his politics, he describes himself as a Republican socialist, which means that he can have quite good politics on social issues. Uh, it's, it's left social democracy, but it's quite combative left social democracy, Keynesianism, but uh, it's twisted with new elements uh, such as ecology. Um, he's in favor, for example, of ecological planning, which is a clever way of bringing together the, the left theme of planning and the, and the theme of ecology. So on those kinds of issues, he's quite combative, as I say, and effective. Where he's weak is his identification with the French state, an idealization of the French Republican form, uh, which he wants to change. He's, he's campaigned also for a sixth republic, a more democratic, less presidentialist uh, republic. But um, he really sees the French uh, republic as a, an emanation of the French Revolution, which, you know, in a sense it is, but quite a lot of happened between the French Revolution and today, uh, including some counter-revolutions and some killings of thousands of communards, for example. And uh, that leads to him to have two main, I think, weaknesses. One internally on the question of uh, race and Islam, where he really doesn't get it at all. Uh, he thinks that uh, state secularism um, is simply a question of treating all religions uh, equally at an equal distance from the state, doesn't understand the racialization of people from Muslim uh, uh, backgrounds in France, um, and is very hostile to any kind of, uh, you know, uh, politics that recognizes that as a central issue for the left. And on external issues, he has, well, he's adopted what he calls a, a Gaullist position uh, of, you know, fighting for French uh, independence, withdrawal from NATO, not being uh, subaltern to the US, all of which are good things, and for a kind of what he calls a multipolar uh, geopolitics. But I would say that there are problems with the way he positions himself on some international questions. Sometimes he's unfairly treated by the media and boxed into a corner on questions like Syria and uh, Russia, but sometimes he gives, he doesn't make life very easy for himself in some of his formulations. But he certainly identifies himself with the French state and, you know, with the vast majority of its military um, escapades abroad and is very uncomfortable about fully accepting and engaging in a proper self-criticism about France's colonial past and indeed present, because as you know, France is still a colonial power. Many of the people who voted in Sunday's election are in places like Guyana, Martinique, um, Guadeloupe, and so on, which are still existent French colonies. We haven't really talked about Hollande, but uh, why was he such a failure? Well, I mean, he's a very pathetic character as a person and as a politician. He's a maneuverer, has always been a maneuverer, has never really stood for any particular set of strong values apart from being always on the right of the party and wanting he's one of the people that you know has fantasized for many years about turning the socialist party into a democratic party he was never he's never been a uh, somebody who's particularly attracted by uh, ideology he's he's a he's an internal party maneuverer and you know he ran in 2012 on a very moderate program but uh, he did say certain things. He laid down certain markers. 
about being, you know, the enemy of finance, uh, of uh, high finance, of uh, wanting, you know, to introduce fiscal justice um, vis-a-vis the the super rich, and very quickly um, collapsed on those issues, collapsed on the European issue, and uh, in fact, you know, did a 180 degree turn and uh, passed a whole series of laws, which were handouts to the uh, employer class. Uh, of which the worst example was this uh, labor code reforms, which provoked these uh, big strikes and demonstrations last spring. And then when the terrorist attacks happened, he desperately seeking some source of support, positioned himself as the strong uh, leader, uh, engaged in these military escapades in uh, Mali, Syria and uh, elsewhere, and attempted a disastrous uh, law uh, reform, which didn't go through in the end, about stripping dual nationals of French nationality if they were involved in terrorist acts, uh, which was extremely unpopular on the on the left, even within his own camp, and, you know, passing a whole series of very stringent security laws and a law of emergency, which is still in effect today. He really cut himself off from basically every possible source of left support that he could get, whether it was public sector, whether it was the trade unions, whether it was the so-called moral left, every possible sector that he managed to coalize create a coalition around. In 2012, he managed to lop off uh, and was left with nothing by the end. Under the French system, the presidency is a very powerful office, right? It is. It's it's much more powerful, arguably, than the American presidency, for example. There are a whole series of constitutional mechanisms, which basically mean that a president, President Le Pen, for example, could bypass the uh, National Assembly and especially now with these anti-terrorist laws and the state of emergency, could uh, have very substantial authoritarian powers. So what are we to expect for the runoff? It's, uh, what, in a couple of weeks? It's June 7th. Well, you know, there will be a campaign in which the entire, as I say, media, political and economic establishment will rally around Macron. The markets have already welcomed his, uh, of course, his uh, front-running status as the best possible news. Marine Le Pen will try and broaden her base uh, by trying to appeal to people on the right uh, who can't quite stomach voting for somebody who was in a socialist party government, however neoliberal he is. Uh, various Catholic traditionalists who, for example, can't uh, forgive the idea of the uh, gay marriage law that Hollande passed, just about the only uh, bit of legislation worth defending. And also she will try and woo uh, some disaffected working class voters who perhaps voted for Mélenchon uh, by, you know, pointing out uh, quite rightly that uh, the reforms that uh, Macron is promising to bring in will uh, shred the French social model. How that will play out, I don't know yet. A lot depends on how effective the Front National is at at widening this base. And Mélenchon has uh, withheld an endorsement so far, right? Yes. He said he's going to consult by internet his tens of thousands of supporters, but he uh, has clearly said that he doesn't feel that it's his role to give support to Macron against Le Pen at this stage anyway. And what would you do? <laughs> um, well, it's uh, it's going to be an uncomfortable couple of weeks, isn't it? I mean, a lot depends on the polls, I suppose. We're all going to be looking at the polls and not believing them as we as we read our horoscopes and don't believe them. I think there will be lots of people who will abstain if the polls, you know, look like it's going to be an easy vic- coast to victory for uh, Macron anyway. I suspect that there will be people who will swallow their pride and vote for him ultimately if it looks like it's going to be a close race. 
he's almost certainly uh, going to prove unpopular <laughs> if, he, if he wins. Uh, does Mélenchon have a future, or does the future belong to Le Pen? No, I think the, the, the big good news of this election is that, you know, what was supposed to be a two-horse race turned into a three-horse race, and what was supposed to be a three-horse race turned into a four-horse race. And the fourth horse was this radical left candidacy, um, which, as I say, uh, achieved a very impressive result in very difficult circumstances. So there clearly is... Um, a space now to create something substantial. We've got rid of, I hope, of the Socialist Party, which was the big barrier to any recomposition on the left. We'll see in the legislative elections in in June, um, sorry, 7th of May, I got the date wrong on the second round, the 7th of May for presidential elections and June elections for the legislative. So we'll see if the Socialist Party manages to reconstruct itself. But at the moment, at least, it looks like it's uh, been um, cleared away and there is definitely a space. Now, what we what is done with that space, and whether Mélenchon is capable of exploiting it in a constructive way, whether he will continue himself. I mean, he's intimated he may uh, stand down or, or not be uh, the leading figure anymore. We will see. What, what is done with all that is, is obviously up in the air, and you know the left is, is, is more than capable, as we know, Doug, of uh, screwing up every chance uh, it's ever had to create a united, uh, recomposed alternative. So we certainly can't, uh, we can't, can't say it's guaranteed, but there's definitely a, a serious possibility now. That was Sebastian Budgen, a senior editor at Verso and a member of the editorial board of Historical Materialism. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. the 29th of the Goldberg Variations by Bach, performed by Glenn Gould. Next, Georgia, a former Soviet republic that has been turned into a libertarian dream state by a bunch of foreign NGOs. Capital has absolute free reign, and the flat tax is almost unalterably enshrined in the Constitution. Here's Sofia Japaridze, a labor and feminist organizer whose group is called Invisible Labor, with more. Most Americans don't think about Georgia, the country, very much. But it's had quite a post-Soviet history. Um, could you give us the, the quick outline of what's been happening since uh, you know the USSR fell apart? We had our own national movement here, uh, which was not as strong as in, like, in Poland and other countries. It was also anti-capitalist. It was more like feudal, <laughs> um, nationalist or feudal, uh, some callback for some kind of a, a mythical Georgia that exists like only in books. Uh, this had to do with the fact that generally it was culture that was most accented as a way to keep Russian chauvinism at bay. USSR itself, like Moscow, promoted Georgian cultural sort of identity. So the uh, liberation movement took on that kind of cultural sort of nationalism. 
If I could uh, detour a bit, what's the status or what was the status then and, and now of uh, the most famous Georgian of all, Stalin? In Gori, where he was born, there's still a cult there. I mean, really, they had a supermarket with like Stalin's face on it. I mean, they really, really love Stalin. And there's a actual like really big sort of communist, sort of Stalinist sort of presence there. They're really reactionary on a lot of politics. They're better on the economic side, but everything else is kind of reactionary. But they're really yearning back for, you know, USSR and that kind of like, we used to be great. Make Georgia great again. Yeah, <laughs> they're the make Georgia great again. And they're like, only with Russia can we do this. Because we cannot be so strong because we're so small, right? So you have to sort of ally yourself with a larger country to be great again. And mostly, generally, I, I get the sense that people hate Lenin way more than Stalin. Like, they still have a soft spots for Stalin, you know, because he's Georgian. And they're like, Lenin, no, he was horrible. But Stalin, you know, <laughs> like, we could see how what he was thinking, you know. Okay, so back to the post-Soviet history. Yeah, anyway, so it was a cultural sort of nationalism. And then, you know, you start just kind of stopped. And there was a huge just economic crisis because most of our bread and a lot of things were actually coming from Russia. And we really weren't making that much here. And so there's a like, huge economic catastrophe. The leader, Gamsa Khudye, who was the head of the national movement, he was sort of a terrible statesman. Plus, he also had sort of anti-capitalist, you know, like I said, kind of more feudal mentality. He really didn't know at all what to do with the economy. And it was such a crisis. And at the same time, civil wars, because there was a lot of uh, cleansing of ethnic minorities, the Georgia for Georgians. All this led to people toppling him. Very few people, actually. <laughs> it was like 2,000 people like toppled him. Anyway, he got, they got rid of him, and they called back Shevardnadze, who was old, like, uh, old USSR president, or whatever it's called now. The diplomat. You know, so Shevardnadze was called back, like, really kind of almost begged, like, please come back and like, save us, <laughs> or at least stabilize us. And uh, he came back, and he did stabilize Georgia for a long time, until 2003. It's just that he wasn't able to do much more than that. I mean, there's also rampant, you know, corruption. I mean, corruption, I don't look at it as, as that bad because it was like more horizontal corruption. You know, sort of everyone was involved and that's how everything was sort of working. It had its own logic. But he wasn't able to really reform to that level. And because there was all these um, networks that he had created to keep stability that he couldn't actually discipline afterward. And because of also a lot of petty crimes, you know, and there was constant uh, shortages of power. And that's like the 90s, what most people remember is like, no lights, lots of petty crime, but a lot more solidarity because people were forced to then sort of help each other out. Then there was uh, elections, which he outright stole, and it was like very apparent. Right before that, um, he was very free with like NGOs, and so a lot of NGOs came here, a lot of American funders, donors. There was a Liberty Institute, there was like all these different kinds of NGOs, which which really didn't have popular support, but they were funded mostly by foreign governments. Usually the forms, the ideas that they were working on had a lot to do with freedom being defined as free markets. This ideology, free market ideology, freedom, freedom, is only looked upon as open borders, you know, like no constraints on business. And these were the people of State Department, Freedom House, that uh, supported student movement here, student movement that took on the Liberty Institute, which you can tell Liberty Institute is already like free market ideology that was already working for a while, like a think tank. These two student movements that emerged defend the right, like right-wing TV station called Rustavi Ori, uh, which uh, was constantly criticizing Shevardnadze, and Shevardnadze was actually not very repressive, but he did try to shut it down once, and this like enraged 
people, the right wingers who like started a student movement, who framed it in a freedom, like freedom of media. Interesting enough, during Shevardnadze, the media was much more free than after. There was the on the ground movement, which was the students, which weren't that, that big, but it was enough, which mobilized people. And then there was um, Saakashvili, who left Shevardnadze at the time. Saakashvili then became the Rose Revolution. You've, maybe you have heard of that. No one knows anything about Georgia. And so in parliament, you have Saakashvili, who's a leader of this party. And you have other sort of dissidents who are just kind of um, tired of Shevardnadze, like ref- they want reforms. Then you have the TV station, Mustavi Orin. So these three things culminated, and it's uh, especially when the elections happened and it was like fraudulent. And U.S. spent a lot of money to make sure that everybody knew that it was fraudulent elections. So they specifically were doing like monitoring and you know uh, spend a lot of money on technical like to catch the fact that Jared was going to steal the elections. And then of course when he did, and it was like done in a very sloppy way, the student movement and Hustavi Ori and the uh, and Saakashvili and his whole, and his sort of band of reformers around him. Their whole thing was to continuously tell people that these elections were stolen and agitate them. And this is the what led to the Rose Revolution. They just told Chavez to leave. He pretty much did because the U.S. also withdrew his their support for him, which they said like fraudulent elections. So that helped to give more legitimacy that this government was illegitimate. Then the Rose Revolution happened. Saakashvili come to power, and he is really right wing. He establishes like what I, what, you know, we call primitive accumulation. He like accelerates it. First thing he does is strengthen the police force. Um, and so the petty criminals, like I was saying, is a huge problem, are all put in jail. He builds like flashy sort of buildings and he builds the roads and to make it look like sort of aesthetically that things are changing. We're free. He, would, he made the police buildings like all glass to be like we're transparent. And where'd the money come from? U.S. was very supportive. Saakashvili has been their, like, golden child at, at first, at least, as the person that established the rule of law. Was this during the Clinton years? This is 2003 until 2012. He brings in this guy called uh, Bendukidze, who was, um, he's Georgian, he was Georgian, he passed away, um, but he was sort of an oligarch in Russia. He took advantage of, during the USSR, right, right when it broke down, it's supposed to have like a voucher system to sell off property and so a lot of people just got tons of capital for like $200, $10,000, like really cheap. And he was one of those people that like really profited from the chaos and the, the corruption. And he made a lot of money and he was also really libertarian. That's really um, a, f- a funny thing though because you know he, he gets rich off getting state property cheaply and then he's a big libertarian. Yeah, he even says that. He's like, you know, I benefited from this, but I disagree with it. <laughs> and he says something like, he's like, I'm going to, you know, we're going to reform Georgia. And he's like, it wouldn't work in Russia because Russia, Russian people are more collective, but Georgians are very individualistic. So it's going to work here. And so they have a huge, a massive overhaul. They, there's a tax system that's like 22 different taxes, goes down to six different taxes. As I said, like the police are sort of used to enforce everything, like financial police, which doesn't actually hide the fact that there was also secret funds and they were actually extorting businessmen that was not on the books, but that's another story. And they opened all borders, free trade, 
everything. Like literally, this is the most, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe other countries may be more free trade. I just don't know any other country that has so many open borders that has free trade agreements with so many different countries. Also, we have the EU Association Agreement now, which is free trade with EU. We're signed a free trade agreement with China. And so we have almost no industry, just to let you know, we have almost nothing here. <laughs> so free trade really means that we have, you know, a huge deficit. Like we have, it's all imports here and barely any exports because we can't really produce that much. We don't have that much. And so in 2008, you probably remember the sort of the Russian aggression or Georgia-Russia war, however you want to frame it. That was like a sort of a big mistake. Um, and after that, Takashi's approval rating sort of fell. And so while when recognizing that his days were numbered after the, the failed war, Saakashvili made a move to sort of safeguard his legacy. They actually say this, Ben Dukite, and like literally this is a quote. Um, the idea was to design a straitjacket for the irreversibility of reforms carried out by the government during the previous period and to create the basis for the inviolability of the principles of economic freedom. So they write something called the Liberty Act which means they were going to put it in the constitution. And by, by then, like the president was very strong and the parliament was more like an appendage. It wasn't as it wasn't as strong as it is now. So they write in the constitution, the only constitution in the world that actually has addresses taxes, which we have flat tax system here, that you can never raise taxes unless the government initiates a referendum. And with addition to organic laws to the constitution, it says that progressive taxation can never be on any referendum. And they call this like freedom. See, we're, we're asking people if they want their tax rates. So they can only agree to raise taxes for everyone as in a flat tax. So it goes up for everyone. And progressive taxation is completely off, off the table forever. Everybody pays taxes starting from their first dollar. I don't, what's your currency? I... Yes, lottie, lottie. Yeah, for their first lottie of income, you're paying 20%. And... Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, which is a lot, like it's so much because it's so low, the um, salaries here, it literally 20% could mean like you're eating or you're not eating. Most of the budget is filled by people who are working and um, v, you know VAT tax, like the value added tax, which is the sales tax. So it's mostly on the backs of the poor <laughs> that the budget is filled. And the government now, which is supposedly more left, but which is not, um, got rid of the profit tax. There's no tax on profit now if they reinvest the profit. So by the, the constitution, we can never raise the profit tax. Only the government can initiate referendum. So to create a new tax or to raise taxes, I call this like checkmate, you know? <laughs> it's like no way can you actually have any progressive policies. So even if leftists, like we were able to form like, you know, amazing party and like got into government, we couldn't actually do anything because it's so constrained. I'm speaking with Sophia Japarizza, a labor and feminist organizer in Georgia. According to uh, standard libertarian thinking, you know, any think tank you in, in Washington would tell you that you guys must be blossoming with prosperity now. Is that the way things are? <laughs> um, you know, I live right uh, in front of the Russian embassy. And every morning, like 200 people <laughs> stand in front of the Russian embassy trying to get out. I look at this every morning and I'm like, yeah. This is why everybody just votes with their feet, which means leaps. They just leap. Our biggest remittances are from Russia and Greece. But after actually the Greek financial crisis was actually devastation to Georgia because a lot of Georgian women work there. Uh, so it used to be around 5 million people, we used to say. And the census was done, I think, last year and it's shown that we're only 3.7 million now. Wow, that's quite an exodus. Yeah. This is freedom, right? Like we have a great country, right? It's like it's prospering. I mean... 
so many jobs and so many well-paying jobs. Now, is anybody getting rich off this? I mean, a lot of the oligarchs were already made during the 90s, you know, because that was when the big sort of overturn happened. Um, the banks are actually the ones who are getting the richest. So it's like a financial capital dominates all other capital here. There's two huge banks that pretty much control everything. Businesses can't even borrow because the interest rates are so high. Banks get to decide who they give money to. Like at one point, they're investing heavily in construction. So they're building tons of buildings everywhere. And so they're like, you know, monopoly sort of capitalism. They get to decide which business gets to live and to die. And everybody has loans now, which, uh, you know, again, nobody had these loans or credit cards. And they were sort of let loose on the population. And people borrowed and borrowed because I don't think they understood what that meant. Like, you're actually going to lose your house. You know, if you put your house for mortgage, like, you're going to lose it. Most people have tons of loans to curb petty criminals and um, to, to give a sense of, like, we're actually, like, now a civilized country, quote-unquote, like, you know, European, was to give, like, sort of un- unsecured and also freely accessible credit. There's a lot of micro-loans here and, like, online loans where you can get a loan in 10 minutes. But <laughs> try to pay it back. Yeah. Exactly. Some of the other former Soviet republics, you know, Uzbekistan and such, turn into really horrible despotic regimes, cults of personality, dissidents boiled alive, that sort of thing. Uh, Georgia escaped that fate What and ended up as a libertarian paradise. Why did Georgia take this unusual route? It goes back to, I think, in some way, uh, our history. One is that we are individualistic nation. It's a very petty bourgeois country. The mentality, consciousness, very petty bourgeois. And we're closer to Europe, and we've always had this self-identification as more European and, like, anti-Asiatic, you know, um, sort of white supremacist in a lot of ways, too. <laughs> so I would say from the beginning, uh, if you look at the USSR, who was benefiting the most in the republics, Georgia was either the first or the second. And was that subsidies coming from Moscow? Subsidies and every kind of support. I mean, also, like, we were able to have higher education, um, get into more, like, higher positions, so it's like we didn't really deserve a lot of things, but we, we got a lot of things. And also culturally, our Georgian films are very were very popular, you know, and like uh, Georgian like singers and so on. So like, like Georgia was always a lot more like the golden child than the Stans, who were sort of neglected always. Before I, I press the record button, we we're talking about right-wing feminism in Georgia. Uh, could you talk about that and if there's any kind of left-wing feminism to uh, respond to it? Yeah, so like when I was saying Saakashvili, the Rose Revolution, and um, there was a lot of NGOs before and after that developed. And so a lot of NGOs were also around, you know, uh, donors, I don't know if you know, but all they do is they want to give money to sort of like women's equality and women this and women that. So clearly there would be tons of NGOs that have the subject, theme or whatever, as, as some kind of women empowerment. The big names here, the big feminist names, which mostly focus on more women in parliament is one. Like a lot of the feminist sort of movements, they're not socialists. And they mostly have connections to the United National Movement Party, which is Saakashvili, the Rose Revolution that was ousted. And just to give you an example, one of those leaders of the feminist movement called, when we were discussing the constitutional, like we want to remove it, constitutional amendments, she called progressive taxation making rich people poor. And we, we criticized just giving, there was, um, company that defrauded tons of immigrant women and in Greece. The head of the gender committee at one point was one of the partners in this um, business that defrauded all these women. So he had posted something like, you know, like liberal feminism has to think about the fact that they're 
the biggest supporters are people who are actually preying on poor women. We had uh, posted that and we were attacked saying that we were anti-feminists. Like they deliberately did not want to understand what we were saying. Rich people, especially head of gender committee, right, uh, was involved in defrauding a lot of poor women, immigrant women. So we were, by the feminist movement heads, leaders, we were, um, we have been decried as anti-feminists just because we talked about them. Almost all the discourse that they want to talk about is not that there's so much labor done by women here, the fact that everyday life for women is a lot harder, and the fact that most immigrants are women who are supporting their families, who haven't seen their families in years and years, maybe decades. Children grew up, grew up without them. You know, they have remittances from women, a lot of women, um, especially in Greece and Italy, have kept this country alive. And so we focus on that aspect, right? Um, and not like sexual freedom, which is um, what they want to f- focus on, or just women and more women in parliament. It doesn't matter which, who, what kind of woman, just any woman. And the women there in parliament are the ones who are for big corporations. This kind of feminism you describe, you know, sort of reminds me of, in some ways, of, you know, the bourgeois feminism in the West, uh, upper class, rich ladies feminism, but without a real deep constituency. Here we have this professional managerial class to whom Sheryl Sandberg speaks, uh, but uh, to whom does this speak in Georgia? No one. No one. That's the, that's the, the strange part. They have no connection to, to the masses. The nonprofits, um, the, lots of donors, the money, uh, come in, and they have created an artificial sort of class, if you want to say, or subclass, that's kept alive by high salaries from foreign donors. Those people do everything for the sake of donors. So when you know, Americans or Europeans, they look at their activity, they're like, this is great, <laughs> you're doing a great job. And so they have actually no desire or need, necessity to actually go to the people, actually try to find the regular women, you know, actually somehow like build a base around them. They don't need to because they're still going to get the money. So what kind of resistance to all this is there? Not a lot. Mostly people, uh, regular people, sort of have just a hatred of feminism. They hate feminists. I mean, I mean, seriously, they have severe hatred. Well, is it a, a deeply patriarchal culture? Yes, 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 of course, yeah. Also, and the Orthodox Church is very strong. That makes everything much more difficult. And so what's happening is that they, while introducing this form of feminism that speaks to no one's needs besides elites, uh, what it does is reinforce a more Orthodox Christian sort of value system. Uh, this combination of patriarchy, libertarianism, and that kind of conservative religion sounds very much like an American's, uh, American right-wingers' fantasy come to earth. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so they get to treat Georgia as their little laboratory? Absolutely. Yes, yes. This libertarian, since they've come in since 2003, really, and like sort of taken power, they've built universities here and institutes. And so almost all economists are all libertarian. And they're considered like really great schools or great inst- or great parts, you know, like of universities, like the main university, there's like a little sub institute where they train economists, you know, master's degrees and stuff. It's all funded by not only American, but European right wing groups, right wing think tanks uh, like Atlas Network, Cato Institute. And uh, what about repression? Does the government uh, give people like you a lot of trouble or are you allowed to do what you want to because you're really uh, not all that powerful? government here has a really interesting politics. They're really not repressive. They're repressive towards drugs, though, I'll say that. 
we have the opposite problem. There was like a protest recently in our seaside sort of um, city, and it was actually the the right wing the who were protesting and burned cars, and the government did almost nothing. They what I've noticed, and it was actually student protest. They took over building forever for like months and months. They took over building. They were never bothered. I'm just <laughs> like like if this happened in the U.S., like I we'd all be in jail like forever. Like here it's. The government has played more hands-off policy because they don't want to be seen as repressive. But I think they're actually more effective this way because if you don't give people any attention, they just sort of diffuse themselves. And as you said, there's very little resistance to this agenda, except for rioting right-wingers for whom it's not right-wing enough. Yeah, people who are questioning any kind of free market ideology at all, I'm just giving an example. There's a new party here that's a libertarian party, and they wrote a hit piece on us, said that, we were Russian agents who are trying to destroy and were the enemies of Georgia and said that socialism was the the weapon of Russia, like an imperialist tool to dominate, colonize Georgia. And we were Russian agents. That's, that's the all-purpose charge these days. <laughs> so, yeah. In the parliament, nobody knows anything besides sort of free market. Like, it's amazing to me if you have any critique of FDI, like, and just free borders or any kind of comment about economics. It's not about no taxation or what's good for business or, you know, like how to make it easier for business. I mean, you could start a company here in one day. It's super easy. Like they made everything for business. And also like we, you know, we protect workers like a kind of like a trade union. And you should just see the, the things that these capitalists do to the workers. I mean, they, it's amazing to me, like the level of exploitation and oppression here. And there are all, there are almost no, there's almost no recourse, and not a, and consciousness isn't there among the people, because they have internalized a lot of the free market ideology. Even they'll say, well, if I don't like it, I should just leave. Well, it sounds like a quarter of the population has done that. Yeah, exactly. Left. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you should see the fact that I'm like, you know, like I've lived in America. Everyone's like, why did you come back? I get this question asked like every day. Why did you come back to this hellhole? Why would you leave such an amazing country and come here? And what's your answer? I try to explain to them it's not that amazing, but they don't believe me. They just think I'm like a hater. Like I'm just making stuff up. They're like, how could you say that? It's so prosperous and everyone makes it there. And I know a friend of mine or my relative who now is rich there. Everyone can make it if they just work hard. That was Sophia Japaridze, a labor and feminist organizer in Georgia. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. It's been a chilly, rainy, most unspring-like week in New York, and now it looks to be yielding to some more delightfully seasonally appropriate weather. So let's go at this. Some of the sun comes out, the mutant disco mix by Fats and Small from 2004. Till next week, bye. Sweet perfume of morning dew in cold November rain. Ocean waves, those careless days will never be the same. Cause you and I will always try to keep our seasons blue Cause me and you are always new that